Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. There's a strong sense of what it means to have invested public authorities with power. Why do we invest them with power? Mainly so they can secure our rights. So when the power is turned around and not used to secure our rights, then the social contract itself, the original compact, has been breached. Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is one of my favorite guests from the past, returned to talk about this moment, which she has managed to intersect with in an almost stunning number of ways. Danielle Allen is a James Bryant Conant University professor at Harvard University. She's a director of Harvard's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. She's a political theorist and a classicist. She's written a bunch of remarkable books, including Talking to Strangers, Anxieties of Citizenship, Since Brown versus Board of Education. But very particularly for this conversation, she's the author of Our Declaration, a reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality, and then also Cuz, The Life and Times of Michael A. And the former of those, Our Declaration, is very much, as the title suggests, a close read of the Declaration of Independence in a way that sees something in it that she would argue often gets lost. Um, this episode coming out when it does, right around July 4th, I think it is a meditation and a discussion worth having. And then her book, Cuz, The Life and Times of Michael A., is about her cousin, Michael Allen, who was shot and killed um, a number of years back. And he ended up before that, going to prison for a carjacking for a long time. And it's a meditation, an investigation, an exploration of what happened to his life, how it intersected with her life. And it has, I think, a lot to say as we think about criminal justice, or as some people put it, the criminal legal system in this moment. It's a, it's also just a remarkable book. And I don't know that we, we very much do not do it full justice here. So if you like what you hear, you should pick it up yourself. Um, also, as head of the Harvard Software Center, She's been leading a huge working group on coronavirus, which has done, I think, some of the best work trying to imagine the fullness of response that we need and work out its long and deep and process-oriented implications. So she has a, a lot to say on what's going on right now and a lot of knowledge to share. And so I will move uh, without further ado into our conversation. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Here is Danielle Allen. Danielle Allen, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Ezra. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. How are you? How are you doing? I'm tired. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. It's been intense these last few months between COVID and the demonstrations and social actions around policing. And you've been doing an extraordinary amount. I mean, I, I would not have expected before this that the Safra Center for Ethics would become possibly the home of like the largest and most aggressive of the COVID working groups. But it's been a very... you you 
you guys have managed, I think, to cover more ground on this than almost anybody else. We caught ourselves by surprise, to tell you the truth. I mean, it started just because I reached out to Zeke Emanuel to ask the question of how could we be helpful as an ethics center. He had been one of our early fellows. We did a lot of work in bioethics um, early in the life of the center. We've been around for more than 30 years. And he suggested that folks needed help thinking about how to put the health and the economic picture together. And that was sort of it. It was down a rabbit hole from there. Yeah, quick conversations with Zeke can end up with a lot of work for everybody involved. I've, I've had that experience <laughs> a couple of times myself. Exactly. Um, let, let me start a little bit older because we're, we're talking, this is going to come out right before July 4th. And, and you wrote a wonderful book on the Declaration of Independence, sort of rereading it um, in, in a way a little bit different than people normally do. So let's begin there. What do we get wrong about the Declaration of Independence? Well, the first thing we get wrong is the notion that we should focus on Thomas Jefferson as the author. He put on his tombstone, author, Declaration of Independence. And that was a real self-aggrandizing gesture. In fact, he was the scribe. The intellectual work of the Declaration was driven significantly by John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. That's an important thing to say out loud because Adams is somebody who never owned slaves. And Franklin was somebody who was an enslaver earlier in his life and who repudiated enslavement and, in fact, became a proactive, vocal advocate of abolition. So both Adams and Franklin were already in a different place around enslavement than Jefferson was. And that matters. The Declaration of Independence fed straight into abolitionist movements and efforts. It was the basis of a text that was submitted in Massachusetts in January 1777, moving forward abolition. And abolition had been achieved already in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania uh, by the early 1780s. So when we focus on Jefferson, we get one part of America's story. We get the story of the slaveholding South. We don't get the part of the story which was about how abolitionism was developing already, even in the 18th century. That's part of our story in history, too, and we should see it and tell it. And so that's a corrective to something that that I've probably bought into myself, which is that the central story of the Declaration of Independence is a story in many ways of hypocrisy, of at the same time, these beautiful ideals were being were being written, they were being betrayed. And you're not saying that story is untrue, but that it's partial, that feeding into it was conscious abolitionist intention, not just unconscious abolitionist intention. Yes, there was already conscious abolitionist intention by the 1770s. The person who is famous for having coined the no taxation without representation argument James Otis had also already in the 1760s written a powerful pamphlet against enslavement. So there was a strain of revolutionary thought that worked its way all the way through to seeing the need for the end of enslavement. Thomas Paine was another figure of whom that's true. So that's not to say that they were fully egalitarians. Um, you know, John Adams was also explicit that while he thought that the sort of universal rights of the Declaration applied to everybody, men, women, poor people, um, people of color, he also at the same time was convinced that nonetheless power should be left in the hands of, of white men with property. So there was this sort of, for him, a kind of this paradoxical view that he thought the institution should, should secure well-being and rights for everybody, but that the responsibility for securing those rights should lie with white men with, with property. So there was a sort of bifurcation between this notion that rights pertain to everybody and then the question of who would actually have access to political power um, and be able to control political institutions. What do you mean when you say the Declaration is best read as an ordinary memo, almost no different than an, than an inter-office memo telling you that there's going to be remodeling or you have a new way of filing your TPS reports? 
Well, at the end of the day, human life and human organization depends on people being able to coordinate around a shared plan. And in order to coordinate around a shared plan, you have to make that plan memorable. People have to remember it. They have to know that's the page everybody's on. And that was really the job the Declaration of Independence had. So they had this set of colonies with extended lines of communication. It could take you know, weeks for a message to travel from the north to the south end of the colonies, yet they needed somehow to be able to move together. So they needed a kind of a moment of punctuation that would memorialize for everybody what their purpose was. What were they trying to do together? So that's the sense in which it's a memo. Memo is you know, sort of short for the Latin word memorandum, which is the thing that must be remembered. That's the sense in which it's just like any other ordinary office memo that's seeking to coordinate the actions of disparate people. So, so what is, in your view, what does the memo say? What is the argument the declaration actually makes? It's pretty straightforward. So it's a group of people who look around and say, you know, we don't like this world. So it starts to you know, win in the course of human events. It's a diagnosis of a problematic state of affairs. Uh, the problematic state of affairs is that the British government is not securing the rights of the colonists as they understood them. They understood their rights through a long history of thinking about the rights of Englishmen specifically. They thought the crown was violating those rights and they sought an alternative. They had the view that they had pursued um, petitions for change internally to the system for a long time. And that after 10 years of efforts, they'd reached the point where it was time to turn a corner, start something new. So it's a diagnosis. Um, it's a prescription of a forward path based on independence. And it's a justification of that self-governing action, that choice of their own on the grounds that human beings are best off when they can govern themselves. And one of the arguments you make in the book is that the Declaration has often been read as an argument for freedom over equality, but that in your view, its fundamental point is that there is no freedom in the absence of equality. Can you can you talk about a bit about how one of those views came to predominate over the other and why you hold the one you do? Sure. Well, in the 18th century, when people thought about self, self-government, they often described it as a project of free and equal self-governing citizens. That's phrase free and equal went always together. So in order to be free, you actually had to be able to play a role in your political institutions. You had to have equal standing as a decision maker. So freedom and equality were mutually reinforcing. That concept of self-government predates the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution and the remarkable transformations of the global economy achieved by industrialization and modern capitalism. So it's certainly the case that as the economy was transformed and you saw incredible immiseration of populations in industrial centers, that the question of equality came to have a different valence. There was a new question on the table, which was how does economic structure um, interact with freedom and with equality? And of course, there was the arguments coming out of the tradition flowing from Karl Marx and so forth that um, you couldn't actually emancipate the proletariat um, unless you interfered with those um, structures of capitalistic market uh, production. So, you know, Marx explicitly argued that the rights of the bourgeoisie need to be um, infringed upon in order to emancipate the proletariat by achieving a more egalitarian um, economic structure. So with the 19th century, early 20th century, you began to have a sort of refashioning of the concept of equality, primarily around economic concerns and conceptions. And cast that way, there seemed to be a tension between a market economy defined, therefore, as somehow rooted in a concept of freedom um, and inequality based on equal distribution of economic resources. So um, the Cold War brought that to a sort of really high pitch with the Soviet Union sort of characterized as the 
political structure in favor of equality, the United States characterized as the political structure in favor of freedom. Um, but what that debate between those two political systems did was obscure the fact that um, at their core, freedom and equality have to be linked to each other. You can't actually have freedom for all unless people have equal standing in relationship to each other. That's a political point in the first question. And then you fold in economic issues by asking the question of, okay, well, if we need to achieve equal political standing, then what kind of economic structure do we need to deliver that? Indeed, I think it is possible to have market structures that are compatible with egalitarian uh, distributive outcomes. Um, so I think you need an egalitarian economy. Um, you don't need a strictly speaking equal distribution of material goods in order to support the kind of political equality that gives people equal standing um, and sort of shared co-ownership of political institutions. Let's hold on that idea of political equality versus economic equality, because you have a great discussion of this in the book, and I think it's a it's a subtle and important point, which is when people hear equality, we're all created equal or we are are we all are equal, the mind naturally jumps to the places where we're not, right? I mean, you talk about people, some people are taller than others, some people are born into a different station than others, et cetera. And your argument is that equality here means something different. It's like a, a, a way of relating to one another, not a way of equalizing against each other. Can you talk about what that difference is? What does it mean to say we're all equal when we're all manifestly not equal? Sure. Well, we're all manifestly not the same. The same. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's what I meant to no, say. No, no, it's no, been, that's a, fine. It's no, been, no, a, little, been a little bit of a long, long week. <laughs> I understand. That's for sure. So um, we're all not the same, but we are equal in some fundamental respects. The most important way in which we're equal is that we are all creatures who proceed through our day trying to make tomorrow better than yesterday and seeking to shape a life course that delivers to us a sense of well-being. So we're all equal in being judges of our circumstances and seekers of a pathway to more flourishing tomorrow than we had yesterday. That in itself, the fact that we can judge our circumstances and diagnose them and see solutions to a better future makes us political creatures and makes us people who want to control our surroundings. That's what we all share. And in order for that to be activated for all human beings, they need an opportunity to participate in political institutions that tap into that human capacity. So we each then, as we participate in our shared political institutions, will bring a variety of different kinds of resources to that process. We have different interests, we have different capacities, we have different experiences that build out different perspectives. So there's this huge diversity of what we can all bring to the process of judging together about the shape of our future. But it is that judging uh, that we all have the capacity for um, and that we all have a right to participate in. One of the things you emphasize in the book is that the Declaration is trying to create a structure in which that fundamental equality can be expressed through political institutions. So what are the kinds of political institutions that lend themselves to honoring the ways in which we're equal? And what are the kinds of political institutions that emphasize um, or that create and uh, sustain difference? So it's a great question. And the core concept is that you need political institutions that achieve the sharing of power. Sometimes when people ask themselves the question, what's democracy? They go straight to the idea that democracy is majority vote. Well, not exactly. If what you think about as a democracy is something that empowers all people, then actually what you need is mechanisms that distribute power, that provide checks and balances so that 
um, no particular group can accrue power and exercise it consistently over time in an arbitrary way over others. So in that regard, you do need a sort of a toolkit of mechanisms that, that balance out the distribution of power and make it possible for people to share in power. So in our system, you know, we have a majority vote in some places, but we have other kinds of minority protecting mechanisms um, built into the structure of our constitutional um, form. So, you know, the fact that we have some things that make the popular vote, make sort of proportional representation the centerpiece um, is one mechanism that gives voice to majority power. Um, we have other mechanisms that um, put the states on an equal footing to each other that actually gives basis to or to make space for minority voice insofar as less populous states get an equal um, opportunity there in that conversation. And you can kind of go through our structure and point to the places that give space to the sort of majority perspective and other places that give space to a minority perspective. And it's that balancing um, that permits power sharing. You know, the layers of our federal system also give us a whole lot of opportunities for different people to come around the table um, in decision-making. And ultimately, I think in a healthy democracy, we'd be looking at all of our organizations, including corporate corporate governance, um, and really asking questions about how to achieve power sharing um, inside that or those organizational forms. That's a good bridge to the report that you just were a, a, a co-lead on, and this came out from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. It's called Our Common Purpose, Reinventing Democracy for the 21st Century. Um, f- I have read many of these reports uh, for my sins. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very expansive and ambitious one. They're, they're usually quite mealy-mouthed on what they actually want to do. This is this is quite a vision for, for rebuilding how uh, American government works. And so let me begin with its fundamental question, which is, why does American democracy need to be reinvented for the 21st century? What isn't working about it? Well, there are lots of um, alarm bells that one can point to. Um, you know, I always point to the fact that Congress's approval rating in 2013 was 9%. And at this point, it's just only back up to about 30%. Um, but Congress is the first branch of our government. It is the people's voice. And so if you have the people not approving of its own voice, that tells you that something is fundamentally broken um, with your political system. There's the data point about um, millennials, people under the age of 40, uh, fewer than 30% of millennials um, consider it essential to live in a democracy. And same thing, I mean, you can't have a democracy if people don't want it. So you can sort of point to all these alarm bells. And then the question is, well, what's going on? You know, what? Why don't we approve of our own voice? Why do people not consider it essential to live in a democracy? And the answer to that question, I think, is pretty straightforward, that... Um, People's experience of our political institutions is that they're not responsive. Um, they don't deliver a sense of empowerment. Um, people see urgent issues in our landscape, ranging, for example, from police brutality to climate change, and they don't see any effective action happening um, in response to repeated efforts to bring these issues to the attention of elected leaders and decision makers. So there are kind of clear signs of alienation and disaffection. And when you dig into that, what you find is that people experience, again, sort of lack of responsiveness disempowerment, and a lack of equality and representation. There's an argument out there that the lack of responsiveness is a feature in an era like our own, when the disagreements run deep, when the parties are very polarized, that maybe if America cannot come to agreement, it is better that not much can get done at all, which would be experienced maybe as a lack of responsiveness, but at the very least, it is not experienced as a series of overwhelming defeats for one side or the other. What do you think of that argument? Well, I can understand why people make it, though I think that our recent experience with the pandemic exposes the weak spots in that argument. So, 
in order for any society to govern effectively, it has to be able to build a sense of common purpose. And that is truer even in the context of a crisis than in regular times. And so um, the fact that this country wasn't able to deliver a speedy, effective response to um, COVID-19 strikes me as um, sort of all you need to look at in order to see what the problem is with polarization, right? That is, um, we weren't able to achieve a sort of shared picture across our branches of government, a shared picture from the federal government all the way down through state governments and so forth to start pulling everybody together in the same direction. Very basic elements of response have been highly polarized, mask wearing being the main example at this point in time. And our elected officials did not see it as their job to um, break through that polarization and bridge that to help us achieve common purpose. So, um, you know, I think in that regard, polarization um, might seem like it's, um, you know, just produces a break on things so that no, nobody has a sort of overwhelming defeat. Um, on the other hand, it also means that you never actually move forward on the basis of a supermajority. And I think at the end of the day, a healthy constitutional democracy is one that needs to have some of its decisions um, supported at the level of a supermajority. Um, not always, not, you know, it's bare majorities make sense in plenty of places, but you should be able to achieve a supermajority with some sort of consistency. So I think that supermajority question is really interesting. Um, the way, the reason I have some qualms with it is that people often work backwards from their political coalitions to their positions, that agreement and majorities and consensus don't strike me as independent a factor in American politics as we would like them to believe. I'll, I'll give an actual example around coronavirus. I mean, you were talking a minute ago about the polarization that has attended that. So I was just looking at this Pew poll before we we uh, began our podcast today, just amazingly striking. They found that partisanship is the biggest factor driving differences in comfort with activities by far. The difference between members of the two parties across a range of activities is 26 points, whereas it's 15 points um, when compared against races, 11 compared against geography, three points compared against age, which are all things that are more direct in terms of the vulnerabilities we've seen people have or not have to the virus. And and I think what we're seeing with that is that people have worked backwards, at least in one political party, from Donald Trump and his views on the virus to, to to them and their current views on the virus. And so how can you demand political supermajorities in an era when it is often to the or it is seen to be to the incentive of one party to create disagreement? And once that is done, then oftentimes agreement is no longer in the other party's power to compel. So I, I mean, I think you're right. I think that um, there are features of our system currently that make an aspiration to supermajorities far-fetched. So it's not so much that I think that we could turn on a dime and achieve them tomorrow, but I think the recognition that we ought to be able to move from point of supermajority to another point of supermajority with some kind of consistency should be a part of how one frames the need for reform. So for example, I mean, this is why for me, if I had to pick, you know, we had 31 different recommendations in the report. People are always asking me if you could pick just one, what would it be? Of course, I always say I won't pick just one. But nonetheless, um, if I were to, I always do come back to ranked choice voting, which seems to me fundamental. Um, so ranked choice voting, of course, is when, you know, you list your first choice, second choice, third choice. If your first choice person doesn't gather enough votes, your vote rolls off and your second choice person gets your vote and so forth. And so what that means is that nobody can win until they actually have a majority of votes. So for starters, you don't have somebody um, elected um, based on 
um, a minority of people positively affirming them. Um, and in addition, um, it also provides more space for a diversity of candidates uh, to come into the electoral space and provides incentives for candidates to campaign in the direction of getting those second and third choice votes as well. So it produces um, a coalition building effect that does um, begin to pull the dynamics of our electoral process back in the direction where supermajorities become possible. So I do think we have to achieve reforms like that um, in order to get back to a place where people can build coalitions for effective governance and even you know, periodically imagine achieving supermajorities for important initiatives. I'm glad you brought up ranked choice voting because that was on my list to to ask you about. But I have a couple other of the recommendations from the report here that I want to talk about. And another of them that strikes me as very promising in its capacity to actually change political dynamics is you argue, and I'm quoting here, to establish through congressional legislation that voting in federal elections be a requirement of citizenship, just as jury service is in the states, all eligible voters would have to participate in person or by mail or submit a valid reason for non-participation. Now, there are some countries that do this. Um, Israel, I believe Australia does. I think Brazil has some similar uh, provisions. But there's been a lot of resistance to the idea in America that it you know, you should have the freedom to not participate. So what what makes you think that making voting more mandatory and more coercive would be good for the country? So it's important to say that our in our recommendations, we put two things together, making voting mandatory, but also making it easier. So we recommend that Veterans Day become the date of uh, the federal election, that is make federal election day a holiday and Veterans Day is a good one. Um, if we could connect it to Veterans Day too, it also conveys the importance of the duty, um, the service that we all actually participate in um, by voting. Um, so it's the, they go together, the mandatory aspect and the ease of voting aspect. On the mandatory side, I mean, it's an important feature that there's no requirement, um, in fact, to mark your ballot. Um, so in other words, it's attendance at the polls that's required. So in that regard, there's still space for people to not participate and in that regard to declare themselves as non-voters. Um, even inside of a process of voting. Um, we do, though, think as a commission that it is really important to revive a sense of civic duty and civic responsibility. Um, jury duty gives us a great uh, sort of starting point for that. We all recognize that a core right can't be protected unless we are willing to play our role um, as jurors. And the same is true for other core rights. If we don't fully participate in our electoral system, um, then we are actually failing at our responsibility to protect our rights to our political institutions. One of the other very interesting recommendations was to subsidize innovation to reinvent the public functions that social media has displaced. Um, what has social media displaced in your view? So we've gotten used to talking about food deserts, um, and it's equally the case that in lots of places we have news deserts. So the erosion of local news is extraordinary when you're thinking about coverage of state capitals, coverage of city governments, um, local investigative journalism, and so forth. Um, it's social media. It's not just social media, of course. It's also the sort of structure of private equity at sort of takeover of the media market. So it's a kind of complicated landscape. But whatever the case, we no longer are providing usable information to people, nor supporting that usable information with a context for deliberation that foster healthy relationality. So I think so many social media spaces are a lot like, you know, more or less going to middle school with all the kind of miseries attendant on that experience. 
And in that regard, um, we need not just to kind of replenish news deserts with provision of usable information, but also connect that to alternative uh, civic forms of connection and collaboration where people can kind of consume that news together with others um, in a context of healthy relationality. One of the ideas running through the entirety of the report, and you can see it very clearly in the, the voting sections, but but elsewhere too, is that it would be good for the country. It would be good for our democracy. It would be good for our future. If more people participated, if it were easier to participate, if it were more of an expectation that you participated. But going back to the the declaration, some of the people you were talking about and and, and their fears of the country's founding, there has been a a long-running argument that sometimes I think we don't like to admit is actually an argument in American life, that you don't want it to be too easy to vote. Um, sometimes that is for reasons of racism directly. Sometimes it's for reasons of power. And then there, it's also been for reasons of ideology, the belief that you should have people who are just smarter or more motivated voting, right? There's a philosopher over at Georgetown, um, Jason Brennan, who just released a book called, or a couple years ago, a book called Against Democracy, making much of this argument. You hear it every so often. So do you want to just defend the value, because I think it's worth engaging the argument a bit, that it is good for more people to vote, vote the franchise should not be not only not restricted, but it's not better to um, keep those who do not seem uh, innately interested uh, out of it on the sidelines and leave participation to those who, who feel like they have more of a stake in it. Yes. Um, no, thank you for that question. I think it's really it's a fundamental question. And I mean, there are a few different things to say about that. The first is, there's sort of a debate right now in this country about when uh, the country was founded. So there's the traditional date, 1776, and then, of course, there's the writing of the Constitution, 1787, 88, etc. Then now we also have um, the argument from Nicole, Nicole Hannah-Jones, for example, that the country should be understood to have been founded in 1619. And I think this is a really useful debate because it, what it drives home is the fact that the country has multiple components and it has different moments of birth. So there was a social birth in 1619 that um, sort of built um, a society that had racial domination um, at its core. There was a political birth in 1776, 1787, that had a different picture of human possibility um, at its core. The political birth and social birth were connected to each other. And we've been living through a sort of country over time that keeps trying to figure out how to realign the relationship between the political birth and the social birth. So this is one feature of the question about inclusion and who should be in the electorate, right? So the social um, birth gave us a constitution that had a very strong view about who should be out and who should be in. And we have fought that view um, over centuries and now achieved um, a world where universal suffrage is the expectation and norm. And so um, that is a huge triumph as we sort of bring together the political and the social constitution. And so I do think it's important to um, continue to sort of anchor and secure um, that merger of universalism in both the political and the social constitution um, simultaneously. So A, it's not for anybody to presume um, the interests or perspectives or capacities of anybody else. And that is very often a core problem with the arguments that X or Y category of people should not be pulled into the franchise. It's only for each person themselves to say what it is they have to contribute or want to contribute. And so one needs to build the structures of contribution um, in order that people can declare themselves um, as they see fit. And from my point of view, that just should be a sort of bedrock um, starting presumption for the condition of a viable um, social compact or social contract. I think it does matter that one equip 
a population with a sort of information ecosystem and a deliberative ecosystem um, that brings out the best in all of us. So we're all learners. We're all processors of um, information, processors of perspective. Um, And so I don't think you can build a healthy constitutional democracy without paying attention to the caliber of the media ecosystem. Um, So in that regard, you know, it's not enough just to kind of build the political institutions and let them run. You do also have to be constantly cultivating um, a healthy um, informational ecosystem. One of the things that has unnerved me in recent years has been that in addition to this sort of long-running argument we're talking about here, there's been a, a an added layer as the parties have particularly polarized around geography and the Republican Party represents a more rural and spread out population. The Democratic Party is dominant in urban centers. Because geography um, and some of our systems that weight rural areas heavily is somewhat opposed to small d democracy, there's been, it seems to me, a real turn and increasingly an intellectualized and explicit turn against democracy on the right. Um, the Electoral College has become very right-focused uh, or, or right Encouraging um, George Will's most recent book on the conservative sensibility was focused on the idea that you should have a much more activist judiciary keeping the tyranny of the majority, by which he means like legislators passing bills that people like, um, from being able to wield power. Chris Caldwell just wrote a book suggesting maybe the Civil Rights Act was a mistake. That, that it seems like we are in much more of an argument about democracy because there's much more of a feeling right now that if you make the country a true and, and more inclusive democracy, the way you get is not unpredictable or unexpected. You get a victory of, for lack of a better term, a, a multiracial left, um, or at least left of the distribution. And that's made it really hard to move forward on some of these basic ideas. Somebody made the point to me recently that we would never have been able to bring the franchise down to 18 in this particular uh, scenario, because it would be seen as so clearly additive for Democrats to to, to get votes. And similarly, there's this um, same issue happening with making D.C. a state. Given what seems likely to happen if more people can vote and did vote, how do you make democracy something that you can achieve, given that one political party sees it as inimical to its interests? So I do think that is a super important question, and um, it points to the original challenge of designing any constitutional democracy and then the kind of perpetual challenge of its ongoing alteration, which is that the enterprise will never be stable unless um, both those who are in the majority, in some sense, and those who are in the minority um, feel that it is fundamentally viable, that is, that they can live in it with some uh, meaningful degree of safety and security over time. So the project is always about figuring out the mechanisms, again, that sort of achieve that power sharing I was describing, where you're trying to get just right this sort of careful weighting between majoritarianism and minority protection. And of course, your demographics and um, socio-cultural institutional realities change over time. And so the sort of delicate balances and weightings that are achieved um, come undone, um, come apart. And so then you have the hard politics of trying to restore um, those kinds of balances, when at the end of the day, all anybody wants to do is win. So that's when you face the problem of trying to help people see that there's something actually more important than victory for their specific policy position. And the thing that's more important than victory is the ongoing um, viability, sustainability of institutions for self-governance, for free and equal citizens to make decisions together. Um, so you, they, people have to actually believe, they have to feel um, in their gut 
um, that they'd rather be in a world that asks ordinary people to help make decisions um, than not be in such a world. Um, but if they want to be in that kind of world where we all have access um, to power, have a real chance of participating, um, then they have to prioritize um, that constant sort of recalibrating of the mechanisms to make it worthwhile for majorities and minorities to sort of stay in business together. Um, and that has to be the number one policy priority with the sort of substantive domains that people are otherwise pursuing, um, you know, in their minds for victory have to come second. So I am kind of arguing for pretty radical reprioritization of people's commitments um, when I suggest that they need to put democracy first. And so at the moment, you're right, like there's, you know, a set of people who seem not to want to put democracy first. And so I think, you know, one really has to try to shrink the size of that group and sort of pull as many people back as possible um, into the cause of democracy. To some extent, I do think that, again, mechanisms like ranked choice voting can help with that. To some extent, um, it's about arguments. And then there's surprises, like with the kind of current demonstrations and so forth around policing. In Colorado, as I understand that the state legislature voted on a slew of reforms with only one dissenting vote. You know, six months ago, that would have been considered um, impossible, right? So like, that was a moment where um, a supermajority emerged again that nobody had thought was there. Um, and that was through, you know, what I kind of describe as a combination of fair fighting and prophetic uh, work on the part of um, direct action um, social demonstration. So there are lots of different elements for what it takes to do to try to kind of pull people back to the cause of democracy and to, to make that a cause that they can kind of gather around in a super majoritarian fashion. But the fact that it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to do it. What if the path to passing a democracy agenda and making America much more democracy is itself polarizing and controversial? And and and, and I'll draw it more specifically than that. Like, let, let's say that Joe Biden comes in and he he wins the presidency and Democrats win the Senate and they win the House. And as some people are arguing for, they decide to prioritize a democracy agenda. That was HR1 for the House and you know after they won in 2018 for Democrats in the House and they expand that and decide, you know what, this is what we're going to do before we do anything else, we're going to make America more like the democracy we know it should be. But what that will require is getting rid of the filibuster. And um, passing this bill in a somewhat uh, unprecedented way over the over the objections of Republicans, such that there is a feeling that like the ground is being changed under them, even if the way it is being changed is towards a more inclusive, small d democratic country. Would the cost of further polarizing the issue, because it is already quite polarized, would the cost of potentially attaching democracy in the public's eye to Democrats? be worth what you're getting by potentially passing the agenda? So I would ask something more of the Democrats, to be honest. Um, so if you look at our report and compare it to H.R. 1, there's a lot of stuff that's in our report that is in H.R. 1, but there's a whole heck of a lot of stuff in H.R. 1 that is not in our report. And sort of therein lies the difference. So we worked really hard in our report to find recommendations that were in combination bold and transformative, also feasible, and that passed muster um, with a kind of cross-ideological group of commissioners, and for which we could already point to there being bipartisan interest um, in the relevant reform. So in other words, I think we identified this, this, the smaller space, smaller than the HR1 space, um, for democracy for reform, that it would be possible for people to stand on in a bipartisan way. So, I mean, to make it the you know, point very, very um, pointed and direct, so you know, D.C. statehood did not make it into our recommendations. 
right? So for exactly the reason that you pointed to, I might personally think that, say, statehood for Puerto Rico or statehood for D.C. Um, is the right thing to do. But as a commission, we did. We, there are things we left on the table because we did not think that they met that test of in the near term being able to secure cross-ideological support. So when I say I would ask more of Democrats, it would be that they actually reduce, for the moment, their aspirations in order to move the whole country forward together um, in the right direction. But I would say, because I've covered this issue a lot with Republicans, your report, I think, is bolder than H.R. 1. And I say that as a, as a complimentary thing. There are things that H.R. 1 has that it doesn't, but things that your report has that H.R. 1 doesn't. For instance, the effort to ensure almost universal voting participation. You have a much more aggressive space on clean funding in campaigns. You want to directly amend the Constitution in a more profound way than Democrats have been really talking about. You want to go through and um, get rid of politician-led gerrymandering. I mean, there's a a, a lot going on here. And I can tell you with like, I say it with 100% certainty, House Republicans are not going to support this. Mitch McConnell, like I, I've watched Mitch McConnell lead filibusters against campaign finance reform laws that are a fraction of this. And beyond that, even to pass this, you'd have to get rid of the filibuster itself um, because it's going to get filibustered. So I, I take your point and I'm sure there's room for negotiation, but but I don't think there's actually a way of getting around the, the central political economy here, which is to pass something like this, it will have to be done over Republican objections. And that's a tricky thing when what you want to create is a more supermajority driven consensus-friendly political system to birth it in a moment of, of of kind of hard power politics. That is something I support because I think these things are good even if you can't get to that system exactly, but you just have a more small D democratic system. But but I'm curious how you how you think about that if you can't if you can't sort of get around it. Because I don't think I, I'm at least going to ask for the the purpose of this conversation to to postulate that maybe one cannot. Well I think what I have says I don't think you can get around it, but I think you can go under it. <laughs> <laughs> so, in other words, um, I mean, if you look through our recommendations, and we've actually sort of sketched out sort of implementation milestones as well for each one of them, and there are a whole slew of things that we think ought to be pursued at the level of the states. So, um, I do think that it's entirely possible for states um, and for decision making driven also by ordinary voters um, driving proposition efforts and things like that to rebuild our institutional structures. So, yes, I mean, there is a general. The, you know, the biggest obstacle to our report is just incumbents, period. So there's, you know, no sense in which what we're proposing is is good for incumbency. Um, and in that regard, yes, um, it's a bolder vision. But I think that given the amount of room for reform there is um, throughout our sort of federalist structure at the state level, the ways in which um, states have impact on electoral mechanisms, um, the ways in which states can have an impact on campaign finance disclosure, in fact, even the way in which citizen movements through states can have um, work, can do work building up to constitutional amendment um, on camp campaign finance. Um, we have um, avenues for transformation that go you know, under Congress, um, so to speak, and change the conditions in which Congress operates. Um, I think that's necessary, actually, um, in order to get the dynamic that we need in Congress. In the framework of this country, having many moments of founding and having also founding documents that we are still working to live up to, even working to understand. How do you see the the protests in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder? How do you see them in that story? Sure. No, I mean, I think they, they just fit straightforwardly in the long-running traditions of the country. I mean, the American Revolution was massively fueled by 
resentment of the arbitrary use of police power on the part of the British. So the writs of assistance, for example, in Boston were rules that gave British customs officers the right to search people without any sort of specific reason for searching them. So, you know, sort of stop and frisk in the 18th century, basically. So in other words, arbitrary use of police power was at the core of the American Revolution. Arbitrary use of police power, excessive penality in our criminal justice system have been at the center of many people's attention for quite a period of time now. And just as in the declaration, they say, you know, we petitioned for redress of grievances and all of our petitions have just been met by repeated injury. Um, Such has been the experience for the last decade, too, I think, for people who have been working on police reform and uh, reimagining of our justice and public safety systems. So, you know, I think there's a lot of continuity. Um, There's a really strong sense of what rights um, should be protected and what it means not to have basic rights uh, protected. There's a strong sense of what it means to have invested public authorities with power. Um, Why do we invest them with power? You know, mainly so they can secure our rights. So when the power is turned around and not used to secure our rights, then the social contract itself, the original compact, has been breached. So um, I think everything we're watching is is fully recognizable and understandable um, in the sort of original terms of the revolution and the declaration and the constitution. Is there a tension in the way America views itself with the reverence with which we celebrate the moment of revolution and the both peaceful but also then ultimately violent uprisings that met the overuse of British power against uh, Americans and the sort of policing of protests today when Black people uh, and others um, protest police brutality, protest oppression at the hands of the state. And yet there's a, a huge, a huge intense pressure to keep those protests peaceful and any deviation from that is seen as inherently illegitimate? Well, you know, I think that there's a there's a necessary tension that connects to being a society born in revolution. Um, at the end of the day, you know, to be a successful society is to avoid revolution, right? So we have to celebrate as our origin actually something that every society also wishes to avoid. So in the Declaration of Independence, there's this distinction drawn between altering the government and abolishing it and establishing a new one. That distinction in the Declaration is used to justify a full-scale revolution, but it sort of simultaneously points to the idea that the sustainability of constitutional democracy is going to have to focus instead on this concept of alteration. Um, And so the question really is, can you um, achieve internal capacity in your institutions and social structures um, to make alteration uh, a real possibility from one generation to the next. So we should all sort of know from the get-go that we live in a world that has made alteration one of its fundamental necessities in an ongoing way. And I think that's the kind of proposition being tested now. It's past due time for alteration in our um, administration of justice, in our approach to public safety. So let's figure out what capacities for alteration we have. You wrote a beautiful book called Cuz a couple of years back about your cousin, Michael Allen, who ended up um, spending many years in jail for a carjacking. And I didn't understood this initially, but for um, being caught like all at once under uh, three strikes laws and then was ultimately murdered. And I'm, I'm curious if the past couple of years of political agitation on these issues has caused you to see his story and to what degree it was his story and to what degree it was the state's story any differently. Um, 
that's an interesting question. Um, I can't say it's really changed my view too much. I mean, I think, um, how to put it? I mean, so for the last number of years, I have been working with a network of colleagues. We call ourselves uh, the group working on justice, health, and democracy. And we've been trying to find ways to help people transition their understanding of um, the problem of wrongdoing in our society um, from a sort of a penalizing, heavily penalizing lens to a health lens and to um, both find ways to decriminalize, reduce the number of things that are criminalized in the first instance, um, but also diversify uh, the ranges of response we have uh, when acts of wrongdoing do occur. So, for example, um, making sure that in the case of wrongdoing by juveniles, there's a bigger expanded range um, of responses that give a person a second chance um, and really um, connect them to education, apprenticeship opportunities, and things like that. I mean, I think there's been a, you know, there's a huge network of people who've been plugging away at this. And, um, you know, Angela Davis has been arguing for prison abolition since, you know, at least 1996, if not earlier. And so it, I think the only thing that's changed is the sense that finally there is penetration of the society at large about the magnitude of the issue and therefore a real responsibility um, to move beyond taking incremental steps. Um, and to help people see what it would take for us to, in a you know, pretty wholesale way, rebuild our approach to public safety and the administration of justice. What do you think of prison abolition as an idea? So I do think that basically we should transition our society from being one where incarceration is our main penalty to being one where it's minimally used. So for me, the model is Germany and the Netherlands. Um, in this country, we use incarceration for 70% of our sanctions. In Germany and the Netherlands, that percentage is around 8% of their sanctions. So um, there's an alternative world possible. Uh, it does depend on a different view of how to respond to wrongdoing. You have to um, be in the business of making everybody whole, um, the victim, but also the wrongdoer and society, recognizing that healthy social relationships are the number one resource for making everybody whole. And then thinking about how do you move past a moment of wrongdoing with structures and conditions that start to support um, the development of healthy social relationships. Again, whether that's apprenticeship, um, whether that's educational opportunities, whether that's various forms of, you know, sort of work release, folks may live in halfway houses and things like that. There's monitoring, but nonetheless, people are able to post uh, wrongdoing, able still to function in the community and work on developing positive social relationships. One of the reasons I ask about prison abolition in particular is when, when I read, um, because one of the things that was striking to me about it was that the policing system actually isn't a huge part of that story, but the prison system is, if not for um, your cousin going to prison for so long, the relationships he ends up in there, um, and how those end up shaping his life when he comes out, maybe the story ends very differently. And so I guess I, that's a question maybe for you rather than for me to, to say, like, do, do, is that how you read his story, that it, that sort of prison, that sending a child to prison for that long puts him on a path that is very hard to get off of afterwards? It's not it's like the opposite of rehabilitation. Yes, that is the case. <laughs> I don't have a very nuanced or long answer to give to that. Uh, sending a 15 year old to prison on a first arrest for 13 years is a crime against humanity. One of the things that was striking to me in the book is that it's talking about a time when I lived outside of Los Angeles. I lived in, in Orange County during some of that period and how much 
you have this great section on the ways in which a lot of the crime policies, the crime bills that are passed during, during that era, they're not about rehabilitation. They're also not about punishment. They're not really about um, punishing people at all. They're about an aggregate crime statistic. They're about society making war on something it doesn't like. And the people caught up in that war are are completely faceless, you know, the proportionality of um, infraction to reprisal uh, is totally out of whack. Can you talk a bit about that difference between as a society trying to punish a trend versus um, dealing with individuals and what the different uh, moral considerations are? Absolutely. I mean, so this is a point that goes back to the philosopher John Rawls um, in one of his early essays, Two Concept of Rules, where he makes the point that deterrence is not actually um, a good justification for punishment in itself. If you care about deterrence, then um, what you end up thinking you have to do is to sort of lock up forever the people that you think are wrongdoers. And so that results in huge violations of justice. Um, as he puts it, you know, the only way you can actually justify um, punishing any given individual is on the basis of a retributive frame where there's a proportionality um, that limits uh, the penalty that you can impose on them. So you might have a system of kind of punishment in general with some idea of deterrence in mind, but you can't actually drive your selection of sanctions with a deterrent conception because you it results in all these sort of individual um, justice violations. So that's sort of what happened. I mean, so there's sort of slew of... Um, crimes in um, Los Angeles in the early 90s related to the growth of the illegal drug economy and the increasing entanglement of um, of gangs, some gangs, not all gangs, but in that illegal drug economy. So carjacking, for example, was one of those. And there was, you know, totally understandable um, fear of this new crime and its spread and a totally, um, you know, un- understandable hatred of the crime and desire to shut it down. Um, but yes, I mean, what that resulted in was um, a lot of really excessive sanctions um, that were sort of targeted at the kind of conception of a sort of aggregate um, phenomenon, rather than having a situation where judges were making decisions about specific cases, um, specific uh, actual levels of wrongdoing and likelihood of rehabilitation. So, I mean, you know, we worked really hard in the 1990s in California to strip everything rehabilitative out of the prison system. Um, and in so doing, um, yes, uh, caused incredible damage. There isn't a, a good way to segue out of this part of the conversation, but I'm going to try to do it anyway, because in the time we have left, I want to talk a bit about coronavirus and, and, and the work you've been doing there. And I want to start with something that that you wrote that has influenced me a lot on this, which is that historically, when quarantines have been put in place, it's always been for a limited amount of time because the amount you can ask people to sacrifice socially, economically is limited. So you got to use that time well. It looks to me like we didn't use that time well. And I worry that's happen- that what is happening right now um, across the country is that we're not reopening. Reopening is a word we keep using, but we're not reopening. We didn't hit the guidelines for reopening on any of the measures um, in a lot of these places. What we're doing is giving up. And that means something very different for what's going to happen if these caseloads keep accelerating. And so given the work you've been doing here, I'm curious how you see the situation right now. I do think it is within our reach still to fight the disease and to achieve near zero case incidents and that we ought to do that. To the degree that people are just sort of tired and giving up, I I think they just haven't actually fully faced the magnitude of what it would mean to give up. 
So this is one of those moments where I think, honestly, I don't have any choice but to fight <laughs> the disease. Um, and then again, you know, giving up means huge loss of life. There's that. But I mean, in addition to that, um, it just is devastating um, to the society more broadly in terms of kids not being properly in school, in terms of an economy that's kind of constantly on the ropes, not knowing, you know, which way it's going or wh- what, when it's about to take another punch and so forth. So it's not, and it never has been, a matter of visit lives or is it the economy um, at all. When a disease of this kind is running rampant, everything suffers. Life suffers, the economy suffers, kids' education suffers. So I think the reality of that fact, the reality of what a tough enemy this disease is, is going to penetrate and it will become visible that we literally have no option um, but to fight it. So I think um, that's where we're headed. I mean, what scares me is it seems we do have options. We can get used to somewhere between one and 3,000 people dying a day, um, assuming that death deaths go back up as you get the lag from the rising cases uh, working its way through the system. You could send kids back to school and you could just have a lot more spread. I mean, what, what, what I fear is that in reality, what's about to happen is that the public sector, particularly in a lot of states that never wanted to deal with this in the first place, is more or less giving up and we are transferring the questions here onto individuals. And so now it's like, well, if you're older, if you're vulnerable, you know, you better stay inside for the next year. Whereas if you're younger, if you're healthier, if you think you're going to be okay, you know, I guess go with God. And so we've taken something that only, we've taken a fight we can only fight collectively and in no longer wanting to get, to fight it collectively, we're sort of in like a, a, a position where we're asking people to make decisions that are very hard to make and carry out well individually. So it's true that we can only fight it collectively, but I don't actually think what you describe is the path we're on, because the fact of the matter is like this is just a scary disease. It's scary for young people, too, and that's going to come across. It may be that the rates of death are not as great for young people as for older people, but the nature of the death is like not pretty at all. I think young people are going to get scared too. Um, so the fact is, we, it's going to ruin everything. <laughs> I mean, it really will keep the economy in a perpetual drag. If we remain off limits for travel from other parts of the world because of the level of spread here, it will transform our opportunities. It will transform our conception of our place in the world. So I don't actually think we are going to get comfortable um, with what really unmitigated community spread looks like. I think quite the opposite, in fact. What do you think the central obstacle to a more effective response has been? Has it been polarization? Has it been money? Has it been organization? Has it simply been presidential leadership? Like, why are we not where Germany is? Um, I mean, I do think we have to place this one pretty squarely on the dock of presidential leadership. I mean, polarization hasn't helped, but polarization in this instance has really been driven by presidential leadership because Senate Republicans have not wanted to be out of step with the president because of fear for how he would motivate the base against them. So it's been that um, interaction between the presidential leadership and polarization. Those, I think, have been, at the end of the day, the most important things. One thing that I I always want to be careful about in the polarization example here is that I think if we were in the second term of Mitt Romney's presidency, we would not see this level of polarization around, say, masking, right? He would just be wearing a mask. He would be the Republican president. And I think it just wouldn't be that polarizing. And so it does seem to me to be something very specific to 
like this particular leadership we have. Um, I always want to be careful on this because polarization is a force, but it needs raw material to work with. And leaders can keep it from having quite as much raw material. They can kind of close ranks around particular issues. And what has been so striking and disappointing to me on this is that you might have thought this would be an issue where they'd close ranks, but if you can't even get like the president to wear a mask while touring a factory making masks, you know, you're going to have an issue. Yep. Can't say anything different from what you just said on that point. I I think that's what we have to look at squarely. Given the um, range of work, uh, the sort of teams, uh, the, the working group associated with SAFRA has done, what now stands out to you as the couple most effective policies that can be done at scale? We know a lot more about the disease, and we've seen a lot more in terms of response than has than was true three months ago. So, you know, if you were asked, what are the first couple of things that we should focus on if we were going to renew our efforts here, what would they be? Well, we do need serious investment in state implementation of contact tracing and doing that at scale. Um, connected to you know networks of, for example, community organizations, uh, faith organizations, and so forth, um, to provide testing sites and contact tracing teams built out of communities serving communities. I think the other thing, another thing we've been missing is um, really major, consistent, and unified across the country public education campaigns. We have to recognize that public education and public messaging in this space is as much of a resource as a supply of PCR viral tests, for example. And, um, you know, we do continue to need uh, more capacity for testing, more work on supply chain side of things. So I've been advocating for uh, the use of interstate compacts um, as a solution to uh, the supply chain problems um, in the absence of a solution from the federal government. So um, we st- basically, uh, the way I think of it is that we've been trying to fight really powerful disease with public health infrastructure that is akin to a network of country roads, when what we actually really need is a network of interstates. And the reason um, it's been so hard to do is because it's hard to turn on a dime and replace your country roads with a set of interstates. Um, you know, you sort of start off with the question is like, what, but what, you know, we, we can't go around the mountain. What you're saying, we have to go through the mountain? Right. So it's never been seen before the scale of public health infrastructure that we actually need um, to fight this disease. I think it's becoming visible. Massachusetts has built it. Massachusetts has the lowest rate of transmission in the country and has suppression within reach. Uh, We're doing our best to make the kind of end to end uh, public health infrastructure that you need to fight this disease visible to everybody else. Um, So I think it's doable, but people need to recognize it as an infrastructure project. Um, It's of that scale, and we have to do it as fast as we possibly can. And I want to note on Massachusetts to the polarization point, they have a Republican governor there who's been doing just an, an excellent job. So there isn't there isn't anything intrinsic about coronavirus that you can't do if you are a, a Republican who wants to do a good job on it. On that question of what one would build, th- this is something I've been playing around with in my head. So imagine Joe Biden wins in November and imagine going back to the original meaning, the word quarantine, they, they want to come in and say, Imagine when they win, coronavirus is out of control. We're in the fall wave. We never got it under control in the first place. And things look really bad. And so they want to say, listen, we are going to do what we should have done the first time. And we're going to go into a 40-day national lockdown. And in this period, we are going to build the infrastructure, like a national effort to build the infrastructure. We need to come out of it safely. Could you do that 
in 40 days? If if there was sufficient coordination, could you take 40 days and could we be in a place where we could sustainably begin to reopen? Or is it a different kind of fight than that? We could do it in 40 days and we don't even need a national lockdown to do it. One of the most important things is, um, you know, we in May released county by county um, incidence level maps, and we are um, re-upping that project in a collaboration with the Harvard Global Health Institute. It'll come out on Wednesday, um, this material. So we've worked with a huge network of public health and policy groups to achieve agreement on incidence cutoffs. So what's the green level of risk? What's yellow? What's orange? What's red? And you can map the whole country that way, and you'll see that there are plenty of jurisdictions that are at a green level of risk, which means fewer than one new daily case of COVID um, on a seven-day rolling average. They should not have to experience a lockdown. And so it is a mistake to think that you need a sort of single policy across the whole country. For the federal government to lead does not require that it be a homogenized response everywhere. It needs to be differentiated according to those incidence levels. Areas that are in red, yes, they should go back to a lockdown. Um, But everybody else, um, we can get that infrastructure built in 40 days and suppress the disease. And I think differentiating in that way is critical because um, you don't maintain legitimacy for the whole project if you are um, over imposing controls. Um, So it is a kind of delicate balance. It's true, uh, but it's really important that people embrace a principle of differentiation. In the beginning, when the disease hit, we couldn't see. We couldn't see where the disease was. We couldn't see its scale. We couldn't see how fast it was moving. So in that context, it makes sense to do a national lockdown for long enough for you to be able to see and differentiate. But given that we can now see and differentiate, there is no excuse for a national lockdown unless the entire country gets up to a red level of risk. So that puts us, that is to say, we're in a really different place with this. I mean, we now, one of the things that is true is we now have testing that is up to global standards in terms of its frequency and in many places is beginning to be pretty capable. Um, And so I guess part of what you're saying there is that it really does give us an opportunity to attack this in a specific way that we didn't have before. That's right. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, to the degree that people do need to sort of go back to stay at home orders, um, they are not starting from scratch when they do. They now have a blueprint, literally. You know, we have a 65-page technical advisory handbook that lays out end-to-end TTSI infrastructure um, that has been built here in Massachusetts that can and should be built in every state. I think that is a good place to, to end. We will have a link in the show notes to the entire set of SAFR documents. So if you want to go check out the 65-page technical handbook, you very much can. Um, let me uh, end with what we always end with, which is what are three books you would recommend to the audience? Oh, thank you for that great question. So I would start by recommending um, a terrific book um, by two colleagues, Tommy Shelby and Brandon Terry here at Harvard called To Shape a New World. And this is about Martin Luther King's political philosophy. Um, It's a rich and robust political philosophy. And his work doesn't often get taken that way, that its coherence and systematicity isn't often brought out. I would recommend a book by Albert Woodfox called Solitary, written by somebody who spent 40 years um, in solitary confinement for a crime he did not commit, Um, recently won his freedom. It is an extraordinary book. It gives you really powerful insight into the nature of our system of administration of justice. And then I would also recommend Lawrence Ralph's Torture Letters, 
um, which is about the city of Chicago police torture cases um, for which the city of Chicago has um, in the last few years been paying reparations. Um, Across the three of them, I think they really um, give you a good lens both into the sort of darkest features of our current socio-political structure and um, the Shelby and Terry book sort of sheds light on our possibilities and potential. Danielle Allen, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Good to talk with you. Thank you to Daniel Allen for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Gell for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.